Welcome to episode one of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we catch up with Ryan Anderson. I met Ryan through the Hunting Beast Forum, where he goes by the screen name Lockdown. Ryan is a humble but highly accomplished hunter from Minnesota with a wealth of experience gained from a lifetime as an all-around outdoorsman. Ryan has over 20 bucks to his name, including a 162-inch beast of a deer that he nicknamed the Hulk. Ryan bagged the Hulk in 2016 after three years of history and a two-year chase. Last year, Ryan also arrowed his target buck on the opening day of Minnesota's archery season after patterning the deer through long-distance preseason observation. In this podcast, we're going to learn more about Ryan and his tactics. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors, the tree stand silencing store. Stealth Outdoors manufactures a variety of tree stand silencing equipment aimed at the mobile hunter, including climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and more. I've used stealth strips on my climbing sticks and tree stands since 2014, and I can personally attest to the durability and functionality of the product. On top of that, Stealth Outdoors provides world-class customer service and ships products quickly. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com for more information. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Ideal Northern Edge Food Plot Mixes. Ideal Northern Edge has carefully created a variety of seed mixes and minerals to cover all of your food plot planting needs. A bright color coating on the seeds provides visual contrast against tilled soil and ensures optimum seed coverage and density for your next food plot planting. Visit www.idealnorthernedge.com for more information. All right, I'm here with Ryan Anderson. I've been trying to put this podcast together for a few weeks now. Ryan is harder to track down than a Boone and Crockett buck, but finally wrangled him here, got him on the line, and excited to talk to him. How's it going, Ryan? It's going good. I'm finally to finally make this work here. A couple uh, young kids at home. Times get uh, pretty strained. Wild times in the world right now. Oh, I know with COVID it. and all that too. So we'll go ahead and dive into it here. The first question: Give us a little bit of an intro about yourself, how you first got into hunting, how long you've been hunting, etc. For the people that aren't familiar with you from the Hunting Beast Forum. Well, um, as mentioned, my name's Ryan Anderson. I'm 37. I was born and raised in western Minnesota. It's uh, hardcore row crop country where I live. Really, It's really flat. I do drive to some rolling hills and some better habitat hunting now, but growing up, our deer hunting was pretty poor. Our waterfall hunting was not, though. We had some phenomenal waterfall hunting in the 90s, um, and I've shot bow and guns ever since I can remember. I mean, I remember getting uh, pretty much what everybody shot when they were a kid, that red bear compound, that youth compound that has been out forever and ever. And my dad would take me with duck hunting and uh, sat me on a limb below him one time uh, on a bow hunt. And we had this little buck come in like it was super lucky. He came like 300 yards across a plowed field right to us. And uh, I heard him draw back and he smoked him and took off. And I was like, that was the coolest thing ever. You know, I'm sitting there probably with a rope tied around my waist, right? Sitting sitting on a limb. Things were a little different back then. But uh, I shot my first duck when I was seven and hunting and fishing. It's been a huge part of my life ever since I can remember. I don't know what I'd do without it. It's my, uh, it's my escape from the world, I guess you could say. I don't have time to do everything anymore. So I pretty much just concentrate on deer and mix in a little fishing. That's a little easier to do now for me with... Uh, my girls are three and five, and uh, 
they seem to be taken to it uh, really well, catching some bass and walleyes and sunfish this summer. And it's easier for me to do that than to go off scouting by myself and then leave my wife at home with the kids. So I'm kind of in a kind of a paused state as far as acquiring a bunch of new properties to hunt and stuff like that. But I got enough hunting and scouting in early on in my beast career that I got a pretty decent inventory of spots. So going to the waterfowling, uh, I've, I'm not a big duck hunter. Haven't haven't done much waterfowling. Was there any lessons that you learned from waterfowling that transferred over to your deer hunting? I would say the biggest thing is that not all hunts are going to pan out. How many times would you, uh, you know, it's it's the same with fishing or it doesn't matter what you're hunting. You're going to have great days and you're going to have bad days. You're going to have days that you think are going to be phenomenal and then it ends up they suck. You know, like we'd have a slew full of ducks one day and then go back the next day thinking we were going to melt the gun barrel again and then, you know, we'd only get a couple. So that kind of uh, helped me learn early on that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not all fast paced all the time, you know, there's, and especially with bow hunting, you know, I started bow hunting when I was 12 and there was a lot less deer around then than there is now. And I'd have a lot of hunts where I didn't see nothing. So it's like, I kind of got conditioned to that from the get go, which I'm glad it happened that way rather than the other way around. You know, the biggest thing about the waterfowling was, uh, you know, and, the, and you learn about the times of the year too, you know, certain times are really good. Certain times aren't as good, like early season around here. Is really not much around typically until you get the northern birds down, and then as soon as it gets cold, everybody else uh, bails and they want to start thinking about ice fishing and stuff like that. That was some of the best hunts we had. Late season goose hunts too. I've hammered geese in the snow before. You kind of learn that if you put the effort in, there's always some hunting to be had somewhere if you try hard enough. Yeah, I bet we'll get into that later, but timing is a big thing for deer hunting that I've learned, you know, over the years, and I'm, I'm sure that'll come up in the conversation later, but that and it sounds like perseverance, good lessons learned, definitely with bow hunting, perseverance plays a big part in keeping a positive attitude. So jumping over to deer hunting, I'm interested, when do your preparations for the deer season start? I would say in the, in my early days, I wouldn't really start thinking about it too much until midsummer when it's super hot and buggy, which I'm so glad I don't do it that way anymore. I'd, you know, trim all my stands when it's hot out and just miserable. But anymore, it's uh, it's year round, especially if I tag out early, I'll still try and uh, and get out scouting. And, you know, if you can locate a buck that uh, makes it through the season, I mean, that's huge. You know, then you're, you're at a head start right off the bat. So I'll, uh, you know, it gets, like I say, I got kids now too. So if I punch tags, the wife gets all happy and, you know, wants me to stay home where I'm just like, oh man, I got all this free time. I could get a ton of scouting in. and uh, it doesn't really work that way for me anymore, but uh, it's fine. I wouldn't have it any other way for the moment. As far as the scouting, I would say my slow times of the year are like February. Uh, if there's deep snow, like around here, the deer yard up and 95% of the ground is going to be a ghost town. And none of the bedding is the same, like everything's extremely different. So it's really not a great time for me to scout. And I would say my other slow time is like June, like right around now. I'm going to start uh, in another couple of weeks. I'll probably start observing again. Um, I like to wait until you can actually see what they're going to be. You know, it's almost torture if you can see a big old buck with pop cans coming off his head. And you got to wait another month to see what it's even going to be. So I just fish and uh, fill up my time that way. I'm big on, uh, the last couple of years, I'm really big on observing late summer. Like last year, I uh, observed the buck that I shot three different times. He was, 
I struggle to get him on a pattern a lot of times, but he was on a pattern. I seen him, I uh, scouted it three times and he did the same thing uh, each time. And then I moved in and hid behind a bush and killed him. That was a opening day buck, right? Or opening weekend? That was opening day. Yeah, he wasn't a great big one. I mean, I'm not trying to act like I've got a boatload of mature bucks under my belt, but I feel like I've done pretty well for my area. And uh, he was, uh, I don't know, some people would call him three. I'm not sure how old he is for sure, but I'm kind of thinking just stud two-year-old. But I observed him from a distance, and I'm like, I just have to see what he looks like up close. When him and the other two bucks popped out, I heard him come sloshing from the bedding. And when they popped out, my heart started pounding, and the rest is history. Uh, so it's not always about the about the rack; it's about the hunt too. And when you get excited, man, it's hard not to it's hard not to pull the trigger. Oh, absolutely! And I mean, it had so many things going for it too. I mean, I hadn't killed a, a buck on public in Minnesota for a few years, and I'd never got one on opening day. I'd never patterned one like that. You know, plus it was from the ground, and it just everything all rolled together. I just had to shoot him. Yep, pretty exciting. So let's let's switch gears a little bit. And speaking of gear, do you use any sort of gear checklist like preseason to get your gear ready? And uh, if so, what's on it? I'm really not much of a gearhead at all. I've got, I mean, I like to trust the stuff that I have, but I am not one of these guys that looks through the magazines and stuff to try and see the latest, greatest products. My camel is old. The, the camel jacket that I wear, I've been wearing since I was like, 14 and i got it as a hand-me-down from my cousin and i was drowning in it back then and it's like all tattered up but like at this point i've done a lot of killing in it and it's like the last thing i want to do is get rid of it it's old old school mossy oak like jean jacket and no i don't have anything as far as like i mean i bring my binos my rangefinder. i've got a few different bow hangers and stuff you know depending what i what my setup is but i mean other than that I got my bow, my rangefinder, my release, my arrows, and I go hunting. I don't rely on on equipment at all. It seems like nowadays that's what everybody just gravitates to. Like, what you know, what's the next best, best thing? What's going to give me an edge? In my mind, stop flipping through magazines and go walk some brush. Go find something. Go learn. You know, you're going to be way more successful if you just get out there and scout and forget about all the gadgets. Have equipment that you can trust. And just stick with it. My bow is a 07 Switchback XT. I bought it new in 07, and I'll probably have it for a few more years yet. I get pass-throughs yeah. with it. I mean, what else do you want? And what I like about it is I'm super familiar with it, right? It's like I know that bow really well. You shoot something for, what is that, 13 years? It's like it, it gets really automatic, you know? There's no adjusting at all, so... My next question, what's on your must-have equipment list? And one of the things I didn't hear you mention, but I bet it's on your list, and I want to talk about it a little bit. Coming from Michigan and now moving out to Montana, I'm doing a lot more glassing, and I think the country where you're at is a little more open. Are you using your, uh, in late summer, your binos and your spotting scope a lot? And can you shine in Minnesota? And if so, how critical is, is the glass and the observation, do you think, to your success in the season? Glass is actually one of the things, as long as we're talking gear and stuff, glass is one of the things that I will spend money on. I actually got crazy lucky and I found a a Leopold gold ring spotter in a cardboard box full of hunting stuff and I bought the entire box of stuff for 80 bucks. I use my spotter all the time, even when I'm shining. Uh, We can shine in Minnesota for two hours 
for two hours after sundown. I do that a lot, and it's oftentimes where they're right at the end of your light beam, and uh, I always got my spotter right on the window right there. Without that, there would be I would miss out on a lot of certainly the details of was it an eight pointer, or a ten, or you know was this a G four on this right side or left side type stuff. I use it a lot for my observations in the field too. If I'm on the ground, I got a tripod, and sometimes I'm up a tree, and I uh, I used to film, so I still have a a camera arm, and I put my spotting scope on that camera arm and that is the ticket for that so if you've got one and you need to uh, do some long distance um, observing in a tree camera arm and uh, fluid head in your spotter works awesome oh yeah that's a good tip there and you're kind of in a low density area deer density from what i understand and to me that's real important to be able to look at a buck that is and decide with the spotter like you said pick up some of those fine details maybe that's something you want to go after maybe that's something you don't want to go after and that's a critical piece of gear in my opinion like i said especially out west i've been using my glass a lot more absolutely um i've hunted south dakota quite a bit too and if i didn't have a spotting scope that thing saves you miles i mean mine goes to 40 power and Every, every time I head out there, I wish I had 60 power or 80 power because there's always one way the heck out there where it's like, man, is that a shooter or not? Do I feel like walking a mile and a half? Yeah, it's, it's crucial. And, get, and if anybody out there is uh, thinking about getting one that doesn't have one, buy once, cry once, buy something that's decent. Uh, those low-end spotting scopes are just garbage. So it's something that will last you your whole life more than likely. I agree 100% and I advocate the same thing to all my friends. I tell them, hey, you know, if, if that's all you can afford, great. That's better than nothing, but it's almost not. I'd actually rather have a good pair of binos than a bad spotting scope. You, when you get to the mid-tier stuff, though, that that's where it really starts making a difference. And anything mid-tier or higher, then it's definitely an upgrade. So one, one last gear question here, and then uh, we'll get off the gear and get into some tactics. But this is kind of a hot topic right now. And two things. One, what kind of broadheads are you shooting, um, fixed or mechanical, and, and what type specifically? And two, everyone seems to be talking about high FOC arrows. So what kind of arrow setup are you shooting? And has that changed recently with all the, the FOC talk? Um, again, I don't, I'm not a big gear guy. I've shot three blade fixed my entire life. They varied from Thunderheads to Wasps and... Um, I think there was another brand thrown in there, but for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, I've shot three blade muzzies, the originals and, uh, not the MX threes. And the reason for that is because of the blade cutting angle. That is the one thing I see people, you know, it's the great debate, Chevy Ford, mechanical or fixed. It's like, we all almost get tired of (laughs) reading all the questions and this and that, but it's like, to each their own, you know, it doesn't matter to me what people are shooting, but the one big complaint I have with these, uh, especially those two-blade mechanicals, is the super steep cutting angle. If you look at the difference of that angle versus uh, like a three-blade original muzzy, I mean, their angle is probably, if 90 degrees is straight up, they're at like, what, 70 degrees? Something like that? That's pushing through the meat. You know what I mean? Or if you hit bone, that's trying to push, but it's not slicing. So that's the big, and people say, oh, they don't penetrate. Oh, it's because of the deployment that absorbs the energy. No, not really. It's because it's trying to push blades through meat rather than slice through meat. So that's that's the main reason I don't shoot mechanicals. So yeah, like I say, the muzzy three blades, I have no reason to change. I've hit shoulders, spines, this and that, and I have never, I've bent the ferrule, but I've never had any sort of catastrophic failure at all. 
you know, a rippled blade, but I mean, that's expected. They, they, you know, they advertise bad to the bone and I can attest to that. And I don't know, I don't see a reason to change, to be honest. So I stick with them. Uh, my arrows, I picked up uh, some victory arrows, super cheap ones. I want to say I paid like five or six dollars an arrow for them or something. Price was right. So I bought them. They, uh, I was doing a little bit of uh, long distance shooting through my neighbor's. He's uh, got a swing hanging from his tree. It's like a pendulum swing. And just to mix things up, it was kind of like swinging like a pendulum spinning. So I was timing it, shooting my arrow through the ropes while I screwed up, hit a rope. And uh, it ended up hitting the concrete on the back of my garage. And, uh, it, you know, obviously it lost a lot of speed, but it held up extremely well. I mean, I don't, there again, I don't see a reason to change. But I'm not fussy on brand. I think they, I mean, the technology and the gear that we've got now is far surpassed what we had decades ago. And nobody complained then. If you can hit what you're aiming at, as long as, uh, you know, it maybe would be good research. If you got an arrow you don't know if you like, shoot something hard with it, shoot it through, you know, shoot a sacrifice a couple, shoot a rock or shoot, you know, as long as you're doing it safely and see what happens. If your arrow explodes, all right, maybe try something else. You know, it's going back to the, I don't, you know, brands don't kill deer. Brands of arrows, brands of bows, brands of broadheads. You put your arrow where you want to put it, the deer is going to die. The, the front of center, I really haven't put any attention into that. I shoot a hundred grains, which is going to be low uh, front of center. And, the only time that, and I got a slow bow too, um, and I only shoot uh, 53 pounds in short draw length. So mine is extremely slow by today's standards. And the only time I don't get a pass through is if I hit heavy bone, shoulder, spine. I should probably pay a little more attention to that. And I know I'm not going to go with a light arrow because uh, when I shoot rifle, I go with a heavier bullet. Uh, my dad's a big fan of that too, uh, going heavy. And uh, you just get more penetration, you know, an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So Heavy makes sense to me, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't uh, really get into that, and I don't know what my arrow weighs or anything like that. Well, a sharp, a sharp to well placed arrow almost always does the job. There you go. It sounds like on the gear front, you're pretty, pretty straightforward, but I know you have some unique tactics, and we're going to get into that here. Uh, the first question, uh, when we get into tactics, what actions are you taking in the off season? to increase your odds. And I know we talked about glassing a little bit, but talk about maybe your process from, let's say when the season closes in January up until the season opener, which that varies for you guys, right? Mid-September usually. Yeah, I think it's the third weekend in September, which will can be anywhere from like, say the 14th-ish to like 20, 20th, 22nd, but it's right around mid-September right in there every, every year. So what are you doing? Like, Start us in January, and I know you said February is a slow month, but January and kind of walk month to month, uh, what, what you're doing in each month and like a high-level summary. Okay. Um, typically in January, if I've got, uh, especially if there's no snow, that's kind of the big factor on whether or not the deer are yarded up or not. If we don't have a lot of snow, and if I can get, I'll still consider like January until like first, second, maybe even third week of January if we don't have much snow. I feel like that'll still translate into December. I'm certainly paying attention to where some big bucks are at, what properties are holding deer. That That's a kind of a big one in itself, uh, what has deer and what doesn't, because there's certain properties that as soon as there's a snowflake, the deer are just gone. If the snow is heavy, I basically am forced to just forget about it. You know, sometimes that means a couple months of really not much whitetail related. 
But uh, as soon as the snow melts, I have to jump on it as fast as I can uh, get into spring scouting. I mostly, uh, I have enough spots now where I think I benefit from knowing them more intimately. I've talked on the forum a lot about, uh, like I spread myself too thin in my early days. So if you don't know, if you don't know what to expect, how are you going to know exactly what you're looking at? If you've got, um, and, and you can't tell all of this from the spring, um, per se, but just knowing the property itself and just getting a feel for it and knowing it more intimately, intimately will help your gut reactions when you do see a sign, right? So lately I've been really concentrating on a few properties versus a lot of properties. So, um, but I do have to do a lot of prep work in the spring. It's another debatable talk, uh, topic trimming, but it's basically impossible to hunt where I live in Minnesota with all the buckthorn and uh, it's extremely, extremely fertile ground and very thick. So I got I do have to do a little bit of nipping for my sets. And uh, I try and do that in the spring. And the last two seasons I have, last year I got basically no scouting in at all. I was just too busy with kids and work. This year I did a little bit better and I got, I forget if I got eight or nine sets ready. And then uh, a little bit of new ground checked out. And then uh, I forget when the last time I was in the woods uh right about the time when the ticks came out and i haven't been out since but uh so now i've been fishing again and then like i say in another couple weeks here end of july especially mid to the end of july anything big is going to have a pretty sizable rack and uh they should be hitting the beans pretty hard so yeah my tactic is i don't i don't do a lot of bedding area scouting that time of year just because it's so thick and it's so hot and the mosquitoes are just insane because if I'm moving, then I get ate up. If I can sit in one spot and I got my thermosel and some mosquito spray, it's not, it's bearable. So that's kind of what I gravitate towards. So I try to get all my boots on the ground stuff done in the spring if possible. And then mostly just observe, shine a few weeks or a few nights a, a week right before season. I'll uh, drive around uh, right at dark if that's all I have time to do and then shine afterwards. But uh, um, I'm definitely not one of these guys that shoots his bow all year i am i don't know i've had seasons in the past where i've probably shot less than 100 arrows before a season but um that's probably the opposite of most of you guys but uh i'm not shooting 50 yards either so it goes hand in hand but uh yeah as far as my uh my routine or whatever that's pretty much it i'm, I'm really big like i said before on the summer observations right before season those last couple of weeks that's just free intel there's a really good chance that those deer will still be there. Now I know there's higher pressure states like Michigan and stuff like that, but uh, that's the one thing that I've got going for me is extremely low pressure because my part of Minnesota is not like, I don't see non-resident plates here during deer season, during gun season. And I'll probably share public pieces with a couple people a year and that's it while I'm bow hunting. So if I can find a shooter, which is a challenge, if I can find a shooter, I have a pretty good chance of getting on him. I just got to find one that's on a pattern. So one of the things that I know you do, but I didn't hear you mention there is cyber scouting. So I'd like to hear your take on cyber scouting, specifically what you're looking for on the maps and how you're correlating that to boots on the ground. And that's the other thing I'm interested in your boots on the ground scouting. Once you've identified a piece, either something you've hunted before or a new piece from cyber scouting, when you get in there, what sign are you looking for and, and what kind of sign gets you excited? Yeah, I'm really big on cyber scouting. Um, I rely on it a lot. Uh, 
as I mentioned before, time's an issue. So the one thing I can do is get on the computer or on Onyx on my phone after the kids are in bed and then uh, see what I can learn. I'm, I'm really big on going over things. Say, say I got a new piece of ground. I'll cyber scout it. I'm, I'm looking for the best of the best. Like I don't have time to check out 20 or 30 properties. Um, I want to check out 50 properties online and I'll probably visit four or five in person. Let me stop you right there. So when you're looking at these properties online and you say best of the best, what specifically on a map makes you think this is going to be a place a big buck might hang out? What kind of features? Um, anything swampy, big marshes, anything that looks like it really sucks to hunt. If it sucks, it's going to probably have some big bucks in there. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta outwork the next guy or be smarter than him. Sometimes both. Another thing that I really look for when I'm cyber scouting is neighbor properties. I have capitalized on neighbors many times. Um, I've got, well, one of my private groves that I hunt is like, I've measured it on Onyx before. It's tiny. It's like four acres or something stupid. It's less than 10 for sure. And most of that's grass. And I killed a, killed a pretty nice buck out of it one year because it's sandwiched in between a bunch of prime properties. And when the crops are standing, I had hunted enough. That was back when I re did repeated sits a lot. But once, once rut kind of came around, if there was some standing corn there, you were in the game. So if you're looking for neighboring properties that are prime, if you see stuff like manicured food plots, um, cut trails, you know, through the brush and this and that, um, lots of deer stands. People aren't going through all that work to shoot forks and spikes, you know, not saying they don't shoot any, but just pay attention to what the neighbors are doing. And there's times, uh, even if you're within a few miles, um, they roam and in this farm country, they roam around a lot. I've known of multiple deer that have moved in the four to five mile range. But yeah, so something big or thick, uh, or if it, it doesn't even have to be big, it can be really small, but if it's got the right bedding terrain, or like a nice island or a nice peninsula jutting into the cattails, because um, deer don't know boundaries, you know, they don't know if it's a 20 acre piece of public or 2000, they just know if they feel safe in that little one acre, two acre spot, right? But I'm big on, so I'm big on cyber scouting, I like to find the best of the best and that's that's just a guess you know you new guys you're gonna have a lot of learning to do the best thing to do is answer your questions if you don't know if a property is decent go check it out and you just got to keep at it and pretty soon you're gonna be able to relate things right and it's like oh that kind of reminds me of that other property and that one kind of sucked so you'll, you'll learn over time but i like to find the best go in scout it and then i like to rehash things if i find something good first thing I'll do is go back on online and, and look at it again and make sense of what I saw. And more often than not, you'll be able to make sense of a lot of things. You'll find trails that you didn't know were there. You'll find, you know, bedding areas that you maybe didn't expect, stuff like that. So, but I will, I've had times where, as far as boots on the ground scouting, I've had times where I've had to go back a third time before I could like actually pick my kill tree um, I just want to make sure I'm set up right. But uh, as far as uh, what I need to see, um, I've talked on the forum about uh, it's kind of like a, a mental betting calculator. You know, it's like how many how many different things does this betting area have going for it? Are there old and new rubs in there? You know, if there's a lot of rubs, you know, that's a plus one. If there's 
different sizes, old, new, and you can tell that trees, like I often look at trees that are like thigh sized. And if you look close enough, you can tell that it was probably rubbed when it was like a two inch tree. You know, when you start finding stuff like that and you can tell that bucks have been there every year um, from the beginning of time. So it seems, I mean, that that's huge in my book. Um, stuff like bed size. If there's a bunch of really big warm beds, that's another thing to add, you know, another plus one. Um, if it seems like it's an area that would hold deer all year, that's huge in my book because say it's close enough to food that it might get used early season, but it's also secure enough that when pressure ramps up, it can still, there could still be the deer there. That's big too. Say there's a bunch of uh, uh, scrapes nearby. I mean, that certainly ain't going to hurt nothing. Um, big poop. And, and a big thing that I really, really focus on is escape. Like if you imagine if you're a deer, Dan has talked about this a lot. If you imagine you're a deer and you need to escape danger, whether it's a pack of coyotes or a deer drive or whatever, how easy is it to get away? And that's like one thing that I realized uh, in my early days where I'd find buck beds like, I, I'd get so excited. Me and my buddy Tyler, we'd find a bed, and there'd be a rub in it. Like, oh, yeah, buck bed. Yo, this is awesome. Like, how are we going to hunt this? And then it became apparent real soon that the ones that didn't have good escape, and they were just kind of there, and just like, you know, along a slough edge, and there's a little patch of brush, and there's a buck bed in the back. Well, that's really not a classic spot, and it's really nothing great. It's like, why, why are they there? But when you can look at it and say, how am I even going to get in here and hunt him? That's the stuff that seems golden to me. And the funny part about that is I've had, a, a, I don't know, four or five of those type of spots and have yet to catch a big one coming out of any of them. But it's obvious to the sign or because of the sign that they're there at some point. I just haven't uh, had the stars align on those certain bedding areas yet. But it, it's... Uh, it should get you excited and it's one of those things when you're new it's hard to tell like pretty much everything is going to get you excited you're going to see a bedding area and it's hard to differentiate the on a scale of one to ten if a bedding area is a five or an eight right you're going to know it's decent but how decent is it you know and it just takes time to figure that stuff out but that's one crucial element is it has to excite you you have to want to hunt it and that helps confidence so much and if you're not that excited about it just Keep an eye on it. You know, maybe maybe throw a hunt at it if you're not sure. Try and answer some questions, and just keep going until you do find something that's really good. I mean, it's uh, it's a grind. Like even even now, like I'm really confident in my cyber scouting, and if I can find one really solid bedding area a year that gets me excited, like I really want to hunt it, that's probably about average. You know, and that's after miles and miles of walking. You said a, a few really important things there and I was taking notes. I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but I want to circle back to a few things. And one of the things that I've found and that you mentioned that's been really important to me is when, especially early on, when you find a really good spot, boots on the ground is to immediately go back and look at that spot online and look at it online from the perspective that you now know what it looked like boots on the ground and kind of pick it apart and say, this is what it looked like on the map. Now I know this is what it looks like when I get in there, boots on the ground, and how do those relate? And I think the more a guy does that, the more he can go go back and tweak your cyber scouting, and it gets a little better every time you do that. And before you know it, you're picking out the best spots 
from cyber scouting alone sometimes. It's it's kind of a complex situation, you know. It's uh, we see a lot of people commenting, "Oh, this is his entrance trail, and this is his exit, and this is a parallel trail, and blah 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 blah." We've got all the names for it on the beast, but there's like you can't just walk in. You can't just walk in and uh, have all the answers just right off the bat. I mean, I'll go in and I'll try to get like 70% of it and just get familiarized. Then I'll go back online. Then I'll just kind of like mix everything together. And and then it'll oftentimes be like, okay, so that makes more sense. Like after you see it online and then go back in again, I try to, I try to get it done in, in two, uh, two trips in. Um, but if I'm not sure, I just got to think on it more and confidence is, is so huge to me i mean if i feel like i'm in the perfect tree that just helps help stay attentive on stand and uh and i don't know that's just kind of how i do it i want to know i'm in the best possible spot and i mean i don't just walk in and say hey uh, yep there's the tree right there that's the one we want i mean i've spent i've literally spent an hour in a 50 yard area him and han and going back and forth trying to think about what's best and you know what's going to happen with what wind and, and and you know how that goes so yeah exactly w- one other thing i heard you mention and i want to circle back so this probably goes along with getting on the forum and starting to learn about hunting buck beds i think there's a misconception at least initially that these beds you're going to find are going to be worn to the dirt you know they're going to be dented in the ground I think that's actually the exception rather than the rule, but I did hear you say finding a well-worn bed. So in your experience there in Minnesota, how often are you finding like really worn out beds as say as a percentage of the overall beds you find? Uh, I don't find very many and I don't find very many. I find very few big rubs. I don't find, um, yeah, like you say, people people read this stuff on the forum and they think they're going to find something that's just worn down to the dirt and there's going to be poop all over and all these, you know, 30 rubs in there. <laughs> that's not how it is at all. The bedding that I shot my buck out of last year, there's, I don't know, if it's a couple acre area and I don't know if there's 40 beds in there, just to guess. It's a definite concentration. It's a spot that I actually walked in a couple different years and I thought it was doe bedding with the little buck sign in it. So I ignored it. But uh, all that was in there was like four rubs. And the biggest one was the size of a broom handle. Or maybe there were six. I forget. I'd have to look through my notes. But it's nothing that's going to be, oh, man, this is the good. This is it. It wasn't full of poop. It wasn't like, it's actually kind of frustrating, to be honest. Because without that observation, I never would have hunted it, you know. So it's like you don't find these perfect buck beds, you know, worn to the dirt. It's, it's way more complex than that. And that's what takes time. And, and that's why people get frustrated and quit is because they think they're going to find these bedding areas that are just telltale and just super simple. And sometimes you do, but most often you don't. So it's like, that's where, that's where use cameras, you know, smartly, of course, um, if, if, if they're legal, I actually can't on a lot of public here, but observations and hot sign, if you stop back, and, uh, you know, periodically through the season and just uh, say, I mean, say you got a bedding area that you're questioning and you think it's going to be good. If you scout the fringes of it three or four times and you don't, you don't find any big buck tracks, you're probably not going to want to hunt there. You know, it's all, it's all legwork, but uh, to, I'm kind of getting sidetracked. But as far as like finding the really worn beds, not very many. They're, uh, they're pretty few and far between for me. 
so two more things here, and then we'll tie up this topic. One of the other things I heard you say was that you are doing well if you find one really good bedding area a year. And do you think that's like a consequence of the area you're hunting or just there's that few of really quality spots to hunt when it comes to getting in like the best of the best stuff? I think my biggest problem here is the fact that the hunting pressure is so low and there's so many crops. I know uh, I've caught some flack on the forum uh, for saying this in the past that people think I'm nuts, but the pressure is so low that they're not forced to use the same beds over and over and over. They're not forced to go way back into a remote cattail island around opening weekend because nobody's out there. I'm, a, I'm in half of these public areas by myself, and it's like they can lay along any random slough. They can, I mean, I've jumped decent bucks along slough edges that aren't classic, you know, bedding locations. It's just they don't have to bed defensively because they're not that threatened, you know. So I think that's my biggest issue. Um, when I went to Wisconsin last year with Tyler, it, it was pretty interesting how different it was. I'd never really scouted the kind of the, it was kind of, there was some farm ground, but it was kind of big woodsy feel to it. And uh, the first day or two were like, where are all the beds? Like we're used to just seeing beds scattered all over the place. And uh, we found fewer beds, but when we did find them, it was way more concentrated. And I ended up finding, uh, we were only there for three and a half days. And I ended up finding a couple of really nice bedding areas. And one of them was just awesome. It was just torn up. Like I don't find stuff like that in Minnesota. It's just due to the pressure differences and the age structure differences. And um, that's just kind of how it is. They don't have to be, you know, one, one thing that I've noticed about a lot of Michigan hunters, like they, I would never want to live there. I know you used to, but after talking to you and, uh, the guys that you've talked to your, or your friends there, it seems like it's a really hard place to put a big one down. But if you can find a secure bedding area, it's really high odds. I would agree with that. What you said about Wisconsin, it sounds really similar to Michigan. There's fewer beds in general, but the ones that you find are very obvious when it's going to produce because there's a, a really concentrated amount of sign in there. They're just they're just hard to find. Right. See, and that's like, I had a couple different areas where I was like thinking it was going to be some beds in there. Cause like pretty much every single spot I pin, there will be beds there just cause there's bedding all over here. It's really thick. The grass is tall. Um, they feel secure in a lot of spots. So they're so spread out that there's beds everywhere where I checked a couple spots and I'm like, I found like a couple, like maybe beds that I think are beds, but it's like, what is going on? Like, this is crazy. And, uh, the one spot that Tyler went into, um, it just looked insane. The tons of little islands, tons of structure. And like, I didn't even like it because there were so many classic terrain features that it's like, it's a needle in a haystack. Like which one is he in? So it's like, I didn't even want to go there. And Tyler went out there and he walked a bunch of those islands and there was a little skim of ice on the water and there wasn't even a track like no ice broken and he's like it blew my mind he's like they're not here he's like i ain't coming back here tonight because there was nothing in there i think he's seen but he did see a buck cross the road a decent buck in the headlights that morning so it's like they're there but it's like it almost uh you know it's one way or the other it's like really loose bedding where you never know where they're going to be or it's really tough because they're only in a couple spots and it takes some legwork to find them 
So which one's worse, you know? Yeah, it's, it's hard to pick there. So moving on here, we uh, we talked about cyber scouting, kind of what your off-season looks like. Uh, I heard you mention Onyx too. So I started using Onyx a few years ago. I think it's super valuable. And sounds like that you're using that pretty regularly too. So if, if anybody's listening, tell uh, tell them like what you think the advantages are. Because I, I think a large majority of people, especially guys like us that are hunting public land regularly, are using that now. But if, if they're not, give them a reason why they should, because I'm, I'm definitely a fan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where we used to carry around plat books and dad and I would have different years and they're constantly changing. Oh, this landowner changed, you know, this got sold five years ago and no, that's not accurate anymore. And I mean, for the most part, Onyx is all up to date. You got a interactive plat book. I mean, you can, the stuff you can do with it, like measuring, uh, I even use that quite a bit. Um, there's times where I'll be cyber scouting, like, would this be a good spot for a gun stand? It looks like I could cover a lot of stuff and I'll measure stuff. Oh, that's 212 yards. That's 142 and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things that if you got a smartphone, you basically have to have it in my opinion, just because, uh, you're going to be a little bit behind the eight ball. If you don't, it's just a handy, handy tool. Yeah, absolutely. I use it all the time, especially out West. So that'll probably cover uh, cover the off-season scouting. I want to get into some of your tactics now. You're pretty well known on the, the Hunting Beast Forum for ground hunting. You had a real popular thread on there. So I want to talk about ground hunting now. And one of my first questions is, do you have any ground sets where there are huntable trees? And if so, what made you decide to pick a ground set? Uh, yeah, I have a lot of spots that I hunt on the ground where there's huntable trees. I actually... I think I've killed two different deer with my lone wolf at my feet, uh, more or less at my feet. And uh, one of the big reasons is if you get up in a tree, a lot of times you have thick canopy and it's harder to shoot. So if I've got a, I mean, I ain't going to be carrying a pole saw when I'm out cruising public lands and stuff like that. So it's like, if, uh, if I got a decent spot on the ground, as long as you can just maneuver to find a lane somewhere, often a little... Or sometimes I'll take a little string too, or a bungee cord or something, and uh, tie branches back. But it's a lot. It's a lot easier to pull off a same day set in my area, anyway. That's another thing that was very different in Wisconsin. I was like, man, this is glorious. I can hang my lone wolf and actually hunt without, you know, and I can shoot. Like this is awesome. It just doesn't happen around here. So that's one reason that I that I hunt the ground a lot is because uh, it's 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 easier to pull off trimming wise. But, uh, yeah, I shot, uh, I think it was my 2015 buck. I'm pretty sure, yeah, I carried I carried my stand in to hang in a pre-selected tree, and then I decided I, I liked this spot like 10 yards over a little bit better because I could cover one trail a little bit better, and I uh, ended up shooting a buck that night. Yeah, so it sounds like one of the big advantages to you is being adaptable then too, and, and the other one is you don't always have the opportunity to trim or to shoot where you want to. Right. You know, it's, it's a little tougher. You're in their line of sight. That's the biggest, uh, the biggest part that's tricky with it, but it's not about the camo you've got, you know, if, as long as your colors are similar, um, I mean, you don't have to have leafy wear. You don't have to have a ghillie suit. If you can afford them, get them. I'm going to get a ghillie suit. I've actually never had one. Um, I've killed a few with leafy wear on, but, um, or uh, my my work 
Carhartt bibs and cattails. I did that one one year in South Dakota in January. Um, tan Carhartt jacket and bibs and just hitting the cattails. And uh, you, uh, I don't know, if, if you're on the fence about hunting on the ground, you have to forget about all the reasons why it won't work and concentrate on the few that will, that make you feel like it will. And it's a lot about confidence because if you sit there and think, oh, this is going to be impossible. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Well, you might as well just go sit in a tree with some branches in your face then because you're not going to kill anything. You got to you gotta plan it out and just make it happen. And the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Yeah, absolutely. So for the listeners that might be apprehensive about ground hunting, if you can boil it down, give me your top three tips for a successful ground hunt. Um, the biggest one, I think, is breaking up your outline. If you if you set up and you're on a little bit of a hill and the deer's below you and he's got you skyline, that's going to be really tough. I'm not saying you can't do it, but you're really going to have to pay attention to when you move because, I mean, even I mean, people who hunt from trees know that you don't want to be skyline. You need some cover. Um, so if you're if you if you got dark camo on and a blue sky behind you, that's just a bad recipe. Um, Another big one is being able to move quiet. Uh, one thing that I've done a lot of is pulling all the grass, or I carry a little pruner, a little hand pruner, and I'll cut all the grass, cut and pull, do whatever I can so I can move my feet 100% quiet. Because if you're on the ground and they hear a rustle, you might be playing statue for a few minutes. So you don't want any rustling. Be able to move your feet nice and quiet. Uh, draw another big one is draw your bow go through every scenario in your head make sure your arm's not hitting anything i mean i know all this stuff because i've made all of those mistakes i've pulled back on a deer before and had i used to keep my quiver on my bow and had my arrows touch something and uh that was when i was real i was probably 14 or something like that 14 15 and my arrow was touching something and i panicked and i shot and i muffed it so it's like that it's part of the reason that I'm good on the ground is because I've pretty much done it all. I've screwed up a lot of times and uh, just make sure you can move. I've had the back of my arm hit something that I wasn't expecting. And you want to talk about panic, get that opportunity you've been waiting for all year and then be really uncomfortable when you shoot. It's another bad recipe. I feel like there'll be a lot of heads out there nodding right now. Cause I, th- I feel like that's the only way I learned deer lessons is the hard, the hard way. Dude, oh, or or a branch catching my bow, or another big one is make sure you can move your bow without your air. I, I got a whisker biscuit, partially because I'm on the ground and I'm moving around uh, so much like that, but something that contains your arrow rest is really nice, or your arrow, not your rest, but because um, I've had uh, I've had like a stick get through the, the blades on my broadhead, like just make sure you can move. The last thing you want to be worried about is some something stupid that happened and get you all in a panic because your heart's probably going to be beating a little bit anyways. <laughs> uh, so moving quiet is huge. Like I say, go through every scenario. If he comes down this trail, I'm going to wait till he gets behind that tree and shoot there and then practice that when it's early. Now, every single thing you can think of, go through every scenario. Um, and I kind of touched on, on that a little bit, but planning ahead. Um, the biggest thing about planning ahead is your body positioning. When I, I had a couple times when I was younger, let's say a, a deer came in uh, hard to my left and it was walking to front and center. 
Well, I would turn to my left and face it. Well, I shoot right-handed. I can't shoot straight in front of front of me if I'm facing the left. So you got to sit positioned to where you're going to be shooting and watch with your head and your eyes. Look out the corner of your eyes, as little movement as possible. Position, that's where you got to plan out. If he comes from here, I'm going to shoot him here. If he comes from over there, I'm going to shoot him over by that tree and have it all planned out. Position as soon as they show up. And hopefully they follow the script. You know how that goes. Sometimes they do their own thing. But uh, be positioned for the shot from the second you see them. Yeah, and that's a that's a great tip that a lot of people that don't ground hunt might not realize. Because in a tree stand on a platform where it's quiet, you're elevated. It's a lot easier to move around. And if you're not in the ideal position. But on the ground, like you said, eye level, line of sight. You have to keep that movement absolutely to a minimum. And there's nothing worse than seeing seeing a deer that you want to shoot on your weak side and, and trying to have to move on the ground. Right. See, and you mentioning weak side was good too because, like I say, I'm right-handed. So, okay, let's say my ground blind, my area I got cleared out is the clock, and the shot's going to happen at 12 o'clock, you know, and I'm sitting in the center. I'm going to have my body facing like 3 o'clock, you know. A deer might come in at at 9 or 10 and you want to face, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock, something like that. If you want to shoot to your left side, well, that's not natural. Like it takes a little bit of uh, uh, willpower to almost do it because it's uh, it's just it's in your mind to face, you know, give your all your attention to that deer and face him. But that is not what you want to do. Some blinds are easier to pull off than others. You know, some blinds you might be able to follow them like that, and there's a big wall of brush that they walk behind. You just give it a 90-degree rotation, and you're good to go. When you're sitting on the ground, are you using any sort of seed, or are you sitting right on the dirt? Um, that depends on the situation, too. I do have a tripod chair. I carry that a lot. Just a cheap little thing I picked up for 12 bucks somewhere. So I sit on that a lot, and then if I see one coming in, I ditch it and uh, kneel. And if it's prime time... Often I'll just ditch, you know, like that last 20 minutes or half hour when that's when I see almost all my movement is right, right at dark. Um, then I'll just get ready and have my bow in my hand. Um, get a good ground bow holder. There's a couple different styles you can get, but they're fairly inexpensive. Um, I've done some hiding in cattails, uh, cornfields, stuff like that. Anywhere on the ground, you don't always have a spot to hang your bow. So, um, a ground holder is pretty nice. And, uh, yeah, if anybody is uh, interested in ground hunting, there's a lot of situations where if I didn't hunt on the ground, I'd be totally out of the game. Um, the thread that, that uh, Jeremy mentioned earlier is called Success from the Ground. And if you go on the Hunting Beast, that's on the uh, all-time best tactical page under ground hunting. And there is a boatload of information in there. I got some diagrams in there from uh, like some cornfield setups like uh, I'll just describe that real quick. Like rather than make a, rather than make a circle where you're hiding, you know, say you're five rows in four or five rows in and you get permission, you know, don't go knocking a farmer's corn down without asking him, get permission to do that. Rather than make a circle like that, you can have a little bit of a circle so you can move freely, but make it more of an X, right? With, with, uh, you know, say I like to use two shooting lanes. So if one comes from my left, let him get past me and shoot him on my right side, and vice versa. If he comes from the right, get past me, I shoot him on my left side. So I got two lanes. And what you want to do is uh, kind of make an X, if this makes sense, 
and you want to hide back in the corn farther to stay out of his his vision when he enters the first lane. Um, so you let him pass through that, and then he'll often take some stalks, thicken it up in the center, and uh, and then draw before he hits that second lane. And it's not it's not uncommon when I'm on the ground that they'll get eyes on you right at the very end, but it's usually too late. Sometimes they win, it happens. Uh, sometimes you got to stop them and they got no clue. But that's kind of how I do that. And there's uh, same thing as in, uh, applies for cattails. Yeah, and that's all documented on the hunting beast too. There's just a, a wealth of knowledge on that web website. They basically, uh, Dan and the guys on there basically 180 how I hunt. So same year, oh, a huge debt to those guys. One one other quick thing on the ground hunting, and I think we'll wrap it up. But you mentioned drawing, and I think that's one of the big differences between hunting from the ground and hunting from a tree stand. So talk about what your process or maybe your timing is when you decide to draw on a deer from the ground. I'd like to hear your thoughts on when's the best time. If they, if they have their head down, even if they're in the middle of your lane and you're like, oh man, if I draw, they're going to see me. Draw really slow and practice it. You know, it might take, keep your elbow tucked and make sure your draw weight is low enough that you don't have to reach towards the sky to pull it back, but just pull it back slow, whether it takes 10 seconds, 15 seconds. And uh, oftentimes if they got their head down feeding or if they're browsing on something, they're just going to snap and look at you. Well, if you can get to anchor, you'll be fine. Each, each situation is different as far as when I'll draw. Like I say, I'll try and plan it out. If there's uh, um, certain bushes or trees that I can draw behind, I'll definitely take advantage of that. Um, once in a while, I'll have to draw really early, which I don't like doing at all. There, there's often times where I, uh, I'll actually wait until they get in my lane and then just draw slow. Um, that's what I did last year. And I've had, uh, that doe I shot in South Dakota in those cattails. She, I mean, she was at like eight yards and I was in a cattail blind with not a stick of any kind around for a long ways. I just hunkered down. And when she got just when her head poked into my lane, I kind of had my bow, like at a 45 and I just drew and she seen me at the last minute, but it was too late. Sent one right through her heart. And that was that. So yeah, it's, it's, there's no one size fits all answer to that. It's just plan it out. So it makes sense to you and just do it, you know, and if it doesn't work, learn from your mistakes, you know, figure out what you did wrong or how you could have improved and do that next time. You know, it's as simple as that. If you're, you got to get out of your comfort zone. That's the one thing that I can't stress enough. And that's one reason I'm good on the ground is like, I've set up and I've had setups before that I'm like, there's no way this is going to work but it's my only option. So I do it. And I've had those yeah. work and I've had those work and be like, Oh my God, that was way easier than I thought it would be. You know? And then it can happen the other way where like, Oh, this should be, a, you know, this is done deal. And he comes in and then he picks you out and then you feel like an idiot. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that's I'd, I'd advocate to anyone that, that doesn't ground hunt regularly or people who have never ground hunted, definitely give it a try because this is my personal experience. You're going to get into a situation where you wish you had that tool in your toolbox. And the more you practice, the earlier you practice, the more comfortable you're going to get with that. Like you said, get out of your comfort zone. But when you do that with enough practice, you're going to make that your comfort zone. And then you're going to be 
that much more proficient. It gives you a better chance if you find a good deer and he's in an area that you can only hunt on the ground. So I'm a, I'm a big fan, not saying I'm any good at it. I've killed a few off the ground, but it's, uh, and, and man, it's a lot of fun too. You know, I didn't hear you mention that, but, but shooting one eye level, that's a, just a different experience. And it's, it's a great time. Oh, it's a rush. It's a rush. Dude. And, uh, like Stanley said on the forum in that, in that thread, he's like, once you kill a few on the ground, hunting from a tree is a cinch. And it is so so easy, <laughs> you know. It's uh, you get you, you can get away with a lot more, and it just seems so much easier. Um, and one other one other little trick I like to do uh for hunting on the ground or making a blind is uh, you know, I'm scouting a lot in the spring, anyways. Well, I learned a long time ago that if you make that blind in the spring, say you drag some deadfalls or some you know big bushy branches, and you put cover where you want it that summer growth will grow up through that. You can literally make a blind next to a single tree. Say you got a two foot trunk or something. Be like, I want to hide behind this tree, but there's nothing here, but this trunk. You got canary grass or whatever, haul some branches in, set it up how you want it to be set up. And then that grass will grow through there all summer and nobody will even recognize it. It won't even look like a blind, you know, until you sit in there and uh, stomp the grass down in the center. But it's uh, something that I've done quite a bit. And uh, it's a, pretty effective tac- tactic and it's a uh, pretty pretty sneaky nobody ever sees them yeah so i'm assuming from that description that you're not setting up uh lincoln log fort type ground blinds right give me you know we didn't cover that really give me a quick description of what your typical ground blind looks like as far as uh how much you're moving around or what you think you need for cover and maybe less is more i'm assuming from your description um, you want to be hidden. You got to see him coming. You know, that's another thing. You don't want to set up in really thick cover when he pops out at 25 yards when they're doing, they're acting like a silent ghost and then all of a sudden there they are. It's like, you got to be able to prepare. Right. But, um, no, you don't need a ton of cover, but I like, I like to pick out, uh, say there's a dogwood thicket and then there's a, a different kind of tree or there's one like six inch trunk of an ash tree or something that's in there. I'll be right behind that. Cause you want to break your outline up. Don't try and blend into like the homogenous, um, homogenous stuff where everything looks exactly the same. Pick pick the something different, and then uh, as far as uh, what they look like, I do I do add a lot. Um, I've even done that on hunt day. I did that last year on opening day where I just hid behind a bush, and then uh, I had to nip a couple branches here and there, and you know I just stuck them in the ground to add cover, and then pull some grass that I pull out from where I want to stand, shove that in there too. Uh, you, you, you really can like make one out of nothing, you know, especially in the spring, just take a bunch of sticks. You can shove them in the ground. I do that a lot too. And it looks like a little two or three foot tree, you know, or an extension of the little dogwood thicket. Nobody, nobody will ever know, but uh, it's, uh, that's kind of what I do there. You kind of got to improvise, think outside the box. If there's something wrong with it, figure it out. You know, it's not rocket science. Just figure something out, give it a try. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, try something else. Great tips there. All right, so switching gears again, I know you've been on a few out-of-state hunts. What kind of preparations do you make for an out-of-state hunt to help your chances of being successful? To use the example from Wisconsin last year, I spent a ton of time on Onyx. Like, I don't even want to know, to be honest, 30 hours cyber scouting. Uh, just check in. I mean, there's a wealth of knowledge online. You can check up draw statistics and 
trophy zones and, you know, where all the big bucks have come from. Call some taxidermists. I've done that. I mean, you really, I mean, you can learn a lot. I mean, talking to people, call the game wardens. I actually just talked to one uh, a couple of weeks ago about South Dakota for an area that I've been hunting forever. I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to let my secret out. But um, talking to people, if you get a hold of the right person, you would be amazed what they would tell you. Um, even hotel owners sometimes. Oh, I got a brother-in-law. He's got land down there. They shoot huge bucks every year. Oh, they do, huh? Thanks. You know, I've had the same thing happen around Minnesota. Uh, a guy, I was knocking on a door for permission and he turned me down, but he wanted to talk. So I just talked to him and like 20 minutes in, he's like, well, you know, some guys from such and such a town, they hunt that public over there and they've shot 10 pointers out of there. Oh, really? Like, and he holds his hands out like nice and big. So talk to people, call around. I mean, um, you can do more than just sit behind the screen, right? Pick up your phone, pick up your phone and dial a few people. And there's guys on the beast going hunting forums and Hey, you know, there's uh, you know, some people get a little annoyed, you know, if people are looking for a handout or whatever, but if you're genuine about it, you know, it's hey, I'm not looking for anybody's hotspots, but what can you tell me about this? If you find somebody who's nice, you'd be amazed what they might tell you. So, yeah. And my experience with that has been, uh, well, what you said about talking to locals, game wardens, especially I've had, I've had good luck there and on the forums and stuff. I think you generally have a much better reception if you PM somebody. Again, they're not going to give you their hotspot, but they they might give you a general area of a state or tell you what to expect or hey, maybe maybe steer away from there. You know, sometimes you got to take that information with a grain of salt, of course, but you can definitely you can definitely gain valuable information by talking to people and especially like you said farmers, game wardens, people who uh, aren't for lack of a better word competition. And, you know, a lot of times you get real good information from them. So I'm, I'm on board with you there. When you mentioned farmers, that's one, uh, it seems like there's a few outlaws that are starting to, uh, ruin it for the rest of us. If you do talk to a guy who's a little angry, just brush it off. Don't give up. Talk to the next guy because we had last time me and Tyler were out in South Dakota, we had a guy who used to give us permission to uh, hunt his land or at least cross it. And I basically got my butt chewed for no reason. And he was sick of people. Well, then next thing you know, Tyler hit a real nice mule deer and he went on to the neighbor's land. But he was super nice. We ended up buying him a gift certificate for the local bar and grill before we left and told him thanks. So it's like, you can't, you just gotta, it's, you know, just like anything else, whether it's spring scouting or hunting in general, you have to be persistent in the amount of effort you put into it. You know, you'll be rewarded if you keep at it. Yeah, the, the gift certificate's a great point, too, and not that it necessarily has to be a gift certificate or anything, but a little genuine uh, gratitude goes a long way, I think, and I always try to think when I'm out of state hunting, one, you're out of state, so maybe you're not the most popular person there to begin with, and two, you're a representative for, for all the people that are going to come behind you, right, so you want to make a good impression, and, and I always try to hunt ethically and stuff, but if you think about it from that mindset, uh hey, maybe there's going to be another guy behind me, you know, you or some other guy from the beast. Set a good example. I think that's uh, that's real important. I think overall the hunting community does a really good job of that. Like you said, there's a few outlaws out there and people that aren't aren't doing the, the masses any favor. I always try and approach it like a friendship. I mean, I've got landowners around here that uh, I went 
the one unfortunately passed away now, but I went fishing with him. Started out that I hunted his little grove. Next thing you know, he's calling me, what'd you see tonight? You know, and next thing you know, we're friends and I helped him with a little electrical project and then we're fishing and there's guys out there that, uh, that we've known for years, you know, and even if we're, um, you know, you want to keep a good rapport with them, even if you don't plan on hunting their land, take, you know, a half an hour out of your day and stop and say hi, you know, if they're, if they're friendly, when you think about it, um, from the hunter's perspective versus landowner, it's like we get full access to their land and you know, what do they get? Nothing. It's like, you can take a little bit of time out of your day to help them out. You know, I had a turkey hunting a couple springs ago. I helped an old lady carry her garbage out from her basement and, you know, just do something uh, to show your appreciation. And, you know, a, a little bit of effort goes a long ways. Yeah, for sure. And another kind of a, a tangent to this a little bit. A lot of times, like you said, if, if you get to talking to somebody, even if they tell you no and you keep talking to them afterwards, a lot of times they might say, well, I got a friend or a cousin or a brother or somebody from church and they might let you on. Here's their name. And I always call it stranger danger. So the hardest thing to do when you're trying to get hunting permission is get over the stranger danger. But if you go over to the cousin or brother or church member's house and say, Joe from down the road sent me over here and said, maybe you got room for a hunter then that, I think that just up your odds, you know, tremendously. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's all about getting your foot in the door, you know, and as long as you're a decent human and respectable, that's half the battle right there. Yeah. I had, uh, the one landowner that I told you I went fishing with that started out with me hunting that tiny little four acre grove or whatever it was. And then we ended up being friends, you know, he wanted to talk, you know, what'd you see tonight? So we'd end up talking and he'd give me give me a little nip of brandy is what you'd call it here and there. And then uh, next thing you know, he's like, Hey, why don't you just come and hunt my home place? And I was like, really? And that's been one of my best spots ever since. And, uh, and, and now that he's passed away, um, I've got to know his wife, you know, while he was alive and she said, no, you're more than welcome to still hunt here. And, um, you know, you just gotta, you can't expect to get hunting permission and give them nothing in return. It's just, it's a little silly to think that they're going to be super happy with that. You know, just do, do something to give back. Yeah. Agree. Agree with that a hundred percent. So we talked about access a little bit and uh, got off a little tangent there. We were talking about out of state hunting and the kind of preparations you make, but going back to the ground hunting type of question, give me a list of like the top three things you'd tell someone going on their first out of state trip. And I think there's like ground hunting. There's a lot of anxiety or a lot of uncertainty about your first out-of-state hunting trip, and it's never going to be comfortable. I always tell people, just do it. But you've been, uh, you've hunted, what, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, maybe maybe another state or two. Let, let me know if you have. And what do you think are, what's the top three things? Uh, yeah, I've hunted South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin is all I've been to. But yeah, you just have to go out there and do it. You can try and plan it to death, and chances are you're going to end up changing your plan anyway. I would say the first thing you need to realize is that a lot of the ground you look at is going to suck. Or like when we first went out to South Dakota, I mean, especially out there, it's all like open and rolling hills and a few ravines and, you know, here and there. Well, a lot of that stuff had cattle in it, you know, so it'd be walking land while it's grazed down to a quarter inch. That's just like nothing, you know, well, then it didn't take us long to realize, oh, hey, well, the waterfowl production areas, those are federal and they're not grazing those totally different there's all kinds of browse we were finding deer but uh yeah it's 
you'll find some of the stuff that looks great on the map ends up being pretty poor. Some of the stuff that you don't know if it's going to be good at all ends up being real good. But a lot of it, it's kind of like the law of averages. It can't all be great deer hunting land, right? You just got to keep a positive attitude and just keep going until you find something that's worth hunting. That's the first thing I'd keep in mind is that most of the land is not going to pan out and that's okay. Uh, the second thing I would say, I kind of touched on that too, is just don't overthink it. You know, you can't plan it to death. You know, the it's good to put effort into it and try and learn what you can. But at the same time, if you try and plan every single step of the way, it's just not going to work out. You know, it just kind of, kind of goes back to like a hot sign thing. You know, like if we're talking about scouting bedding areas, you want to find the hot sign. Well, plan your trip, pick your location, make those decisions wisely. And then from there, just don't overthink it. Go find yourself a buck to shoot. I would say, lastly, just have fun. You're not at work. You don't have a bunch of responsibilities. All you got to do is hunt. What could be better than that? Even if it's not going that well, okay, well, now we know not to come back here. I guess that's a win, you know. No use getting all mad about it because it's not going to make the situation better. So just try and have fun regardless of how the hunt is going. I I agree with with all those. And I would just want to circle back some of the things you said that kind of mirror my own experience. So coming from Michigan, Michigan's a dairy state. I think Minnesota's primarily a dairy state, but you guys have range cattle there? Uh, most of the cattle, we don't have a lot of cattle on pasture. It's a lot of feedlots, and then um, our dairies are all, they got, they're all inside in free stalls. Same, so for Michigan, so the first time I hunted Kansas, it was a real eye-opener to see all the all the pasture cattle, and like you said, that's a whole other dynamic, so that's kind of fun, and, and it's different to get used to. It's got its own set of challenges, like you said. You might find an area that looks primo on the map, and then you get there, and it's absolutely full of cattle, so. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, anybody that hunts South Dakota, and they've never been there, and they're not used to dealing with that, but you'll also find that you can find deer with the cattle. We've had many times where we got a deer on the cart and you're pulling them past cows. Um, so, yeah, that's part of the learning curve, that's for sure. Yeah, and that kind of leads into the second thing I wanted to talk about that you mentioned was to keep moving. And that's something that I've found to be true, definitely, if you're hunting public land out of state, uh, especially if you don't know the area well, like your first time in there, even your second time in there don't have a plan A, a B, and C. I mean, you need to have like five plans. And I'll talk a little bit about a hunt I did in Kansas in 2018. So my buddy Joel, Jay Moss on the Beast, and I, we actually took a trip to Kansas in the spring in March and did scouting for a, a full three-day weekend. I mean, like walked ourselves to death, had all these good spots marked up. Well, f- for reasons I want to get into to give away the spot, we, we couldn't hunt any of those. So when we went there in the fall, it was starting all over plan A, plan B, plan C. So A was out the window, but we had a bunch of other kind of backup pieces that we cyber scouted. And dude, the first three days, I didn't see a deer, but on day four, driving around in the morning, glassing, found some deer, ended up getting into a really good area. Uh, Joel, Joel ended up killing a buck there and we, we saw a couple other slammers, you know, didn't, I didn't close the deal, but keep moving. That's, you don't want to spread yourself so thin. It's like, it's, it's hard to find that balance between keep moving and, and sit on a piece. And the reason we kept moving is because we just weren't seeing the sign. But when we started glassing those deer, when we got into those pieces, man, the sign was red hot. You know, you had fresh tracks, big rubs, there was good feed in the area. So 
I wanted to, I just wanted to go back to that, what you said, keep moving. Cause I think that's super important, but I want to, I want to finish that thought up with keep moving, but stop when you find them. Right. It's a gut instinct thing. It's a gut instinct thing that if you haven't done it many times, it's going to be tough to know. The way I look at it is there have been far more success stories by guys that just kept grinding until they found what they wanted versus, well, I'm sure glad we stuck it out here. You know, it's like, I knew we'd finally get lucky when it's like, I, I even looking for hot sign around here. I like to keep on looking until I find something that I can't imagine walking past. I, I've had that happen yeah. in South Dakota where it's just like, Oh, that looks like a pretty good spot. And you drive by, Oh, look at there's eight does and fawns over there and a little buck over there. Okay. You know, and if you keep going, you know, you might find, you know, the honey hole. You just never know what's over that next ridge, you know. But if you sit there and sit still, well, chances are you know what you're going to find. Of course, it's deer hunting. You always have a chance. But, uh, I mean, I, I find way more success by just keeping going until you found exactly what you're looking for. Don't don't compromise, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like to describe the really premium spots that I've hunted like a big buck you know a big buck shooter no doubt when you see it like oh my god and i feel the same way about when you get into an area that's going to be or is a great hunting area it's like you said you can't imagine walking past it and for people that are that are kind of new to scouting or new to hunting out of state you'll know these areas when you see them and one more kansas story right so this is the first time i went to kansas 2016 i was actually on some private land that we got on through a buddy and, and these farmers had a few different pieces of land and the one they hadn't hunted at all. So I was like, well, let's go check it out. Let's go scout it. So we went out there, the three of us in the morning and just kind of walked the piece and saw the biggest track I had ever seen. Saw three, you know, probably the biggest, tallest eight inch tree shredded chainsaw looking rubs. The area was screaming big buck. So I hunted there that night, didn't see anything hunted there the next morning and in a really brutal story <laughs> and a freezing morning, right? When I climbed down the tree, uh, I made it about 50 yards from my tree and looked back and, and there's a 160 inch buck, right? So you'll know these areas when you see them and, and, and the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're not seeing sign, if you're not seeing big tracks, you're not seeing hot sign, keep moving. And, yeah. And a big thing as far as learning is if you, really analyze what you're doing and where you're at right it's like there's more to it than well we've checked five properties and we haven't found anything good yet okay what kind of properties did you look at was there cows in all of them were you by water is it hot out you know did they lack water like what are you doing wrong it's kind of like uh you're trying to figure out you know there's so many questions it's like this algorithm that you're missing this one major part of what part of this puzzle are we missing Right. So it's more than just, well, we just need to keep checking properties. You know, you can put a little more effort into your thought process than that. Yeah, for sure. And the last thing that I heard you mention and I wanted to come back to, uh, I think this is huge too. have fun slash have a good attitude. It's it's easy, especially on your first time out of state. If you're not having success or you're not seeing deer to question like, hey, what am I missing out on back home and, and spots that I know like the back of my hand? Or, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to get down after a couple of days and think, what am I doing here? I spent all this money, but talk about maybe how you keep a good attitude. And, and maybe if you've got a story where, 
later on in the hunt after a grind you had some success uh i have a good story for that it's not an out-of-state story but yeah it's tough it does get to be a grind when you're out west and you're in new stuff and for one my biggest piece of advice is get out of the truck the locals in south dakota drive 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 go crest a few hills walk a couple miles you'll find deer yeah it can get to be a grind i mean we've had times where you walk you know like a four or five mile loop and you don't see a deer well, after you do that for a couple of days, yeah, I mean, it's only natural that morale is going to be pretty low, especially after uh, my 2016 buck, the story that I'm going to tell. Um, I, I mean, we've all heard it a million times, but all it takes is one. It's like, and, and you really have to uh, think positive in the aspect of like, I'm out here, I'm on vacation, I'm deer hunting. The success is all the sweeter, you know, with a little struggle in there. So it's like without the bad times, the good times aren't as good either. And you're you're healthy. You've got two legs to get you where you want to go. You know, how many people are maybe sick in the hospital or they had their, you know, a family illness and they had to cancel their trip. No matter how bad you think you have it, it could always be worse. So find something positive and uh, just stick to it. And sometimes if you need a mental break, sleep in. You know, if uh, if you just, you're getting mad and it's like you, you're over it, have a couple cocktails, sleep in until nine. You know, it's not something that you're going to want to do often. But uh, if you need a mental break, take a mental break. But uh, to tell the story real quick, I feel like I'm fairly windy, but my 2016 buck is a deer from Minnesota that I, I knew about him for three years, chased him for two, and I was severely limited by the land that I had access to. Two small private parcels in the same section, but totaled probably 30, 40 acres tops and uh uh, out of the two parcels well to make a long story short i unsuccessfully hunted him one year never saw him during during shooting light but he was all over my cameras i shot a buck the night before and then he just blew up my cameras (laughs) and uh i was like you gotta be freaking kidding me like like a couple times a week in daylight i was like next year this guy is dead like he is all over here he is dead well He'd showed up a few times at night, but I, but never in the daytime. It was totally different year. And it got to the point where it was a uh, second week in a shotgun. I was feeling sorry for myself. It was pretty pathetic. Honestly, I, I was texting a few friends. Like I remember texting Tyler and saying like, Oh, I just give like 50 bucks or hundred bucks to know exactly where he is right now. And he's like, Oh, I know it gets to be such a grind and this and that, you know, you obsess over a certain buck and, Next thing you know, I look up and he's standing there chewing like a cow chewing cud, just standing there, his eyes half open at like (laughs) 75 yards away, scraping on the only shrub that's out there. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) And I shot him and that taught me so much. Like I went from like, like I say, I was really, I really was feeling sorry for myself and uh, for no reason, just because I couldn't find the deer that I wanted to shoot, you know? And uh, in the blink of an eye, like I got super lucky that he didn't see me because I remember picking my head up fast and I looked up and there he was. And I was like, oh, my God, it's him. And then, uh, yeah, so it's like you can never, ever say die. I was supposed to have that deer dead in archery season. Then I got permission to gun hunt the other grove. And I'm like, he was all over on camera. This is going to be easy. Never got to gun hunt here before. He's dead. Nothing. I wasn't even seeing two-year-old bucks just my season sucked and then just like that best season of my life yeah man it's 
it is cliche, but you're right. Every every minute counts, and as long as you got daylight left, you're still in the game, and it, it can happen at any time. So it's I mean it's hard to stay focused. It's hard to keep the morale up. But like you said, there's there's you could be in such worse scenarios, and got to feel fortunate to be able to get out there. And I've hunted with some guys that that have had some uh, attitude problems. I'd say. And when you think about it, you plan this trip for months in advance and you, you love deer hunting and you get a week all year. So get out there and get after it every single day. And, and even if you don't really believe it, you got to really believe it because that's how it happens. And that confidence leads in, into, uh, you know, staying after it, I think for sure. I'm, re- I'm reminded of uh, Magic Man on the forum talking about not caring if he kills one you know it's a little easier to not care when you got a bunch of bucks under his under your belt like he does but you understand what i'm saying it's like it's a different mindset if you're like hey i'm just out here hunting having fun if i kill one awesome if i don't so what i'm gonna do everything i can and then that'll be that it's like but if you put all this pressure on yourself i used to do that really bad and i'd be burned out like by the time hunting got good (laughs) it'd be like i don't know how many how many bucks I killed like October. Well, my birthday is October 29th. Like three of them I've killed on my birthday that were like just big enough where it's just like, man, if you would just hold on for a little bit more instead of this pity party and frustration, <laughs> shooting something, you know, that's what I'm oh, big <laughs> enough. Whack. Hey, I got one. Yay, yeah. yeah. I'm awesome. No, it's just like, you gotta. And I think it's a lot of experience too. It's like, you have to pass some of those bucks and then shoot a bigger one later gets a lot easier once you do get to that point you know or or you don't shoot one at all and you eat your tag but then you shoot a nice one the next year it's like hey i guess i didn't die you know i i bought some food at the grocery store and i made it another <laughs> year you know is is it really that big of a deal it's deer hunting nobody's gonna remember when you're dead that in 2020 you went you went deerless and you had to buy beef that year you know yeah. nobody's gonna know and nobody's gonna care not going to make the history books. That's a, that's actually a great segue though. We'll get into the last couple of questions here and, and start wrapping this up. Looking, uh, looking back, what do you think were some of your biggest mistakes you made early on and make this, if you can, like a two-part answer. So kind of pre hunting beast and post hunting beast, because I think anybody that's been on the hunting beast forum and has adopted the, the bed hunting style tactics, definitely a learning curve in its own there, but you got a learning curve when you start deer hunting too. So if you could kind of talk about both of those and maybe from like, you know, totally green up to hunting beast and then totally green hunting beast up to now, what were some of the mistakes that you made? Okay. Totally green pre beast over hunting the heck out of my stands. Just like so many people still do thinking that intrusion checking cameras didn't matter. You know, Oh, I haven't checked that for two weeks. (laughs) Yeah. I don't view it the same anymore. Uh, And another big one was I used to be a season-long rut funnel hunter. All year, oh, look at anything that comes through here. Look at this slew edge pushes up against the standing corn. I can cover anything that comes through here. You know, it's like, this is money. And then sit there and nothing. Sit there and nothing. Sit there and a doe comes by. Well, sooner or later, yeah, you know, we've talked about it on the Beast a million times. I think it was Singing Bridge that said, I think it's in one of those... Uh, greatest threads in that in that sticky thread but you can be sitting in the most beautiful funnel in the world 
but it is worthless if they don't have a reason to go through it. Sit there and say, why would a deer walk through here? And it's just like, when I read that and I'm like, I am an idiot. How did I not, how did that not click? It's just like, it makes so much sense. It's like, oh my God. So that was definitely the mistakes I made. I, I was, I sat rut funnels constantly because I'd have success during the rut. So that's the, I'd go out and scout and like, oh, look at this funnel. Oh, look at that funnel. And uh, yeah, I'd see deer and get strung along, you know, like Dan, Dan says. And then when rut would come, then I'd finally have some success. You know, see, like, see, I knew if I kept at it, I'd get one. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know what I mean? So uh, that's how, that's how that was. Again, probably a lot of heads nodding out there right now. Oh, dude, I, I will uh, never forget the feeling. I think it was in Dan's Marsh Bucks video when he said, the reason why most people don't have success, you know, early and late in the season is because they're using rut tactics all year long. I, I literally snapped forward on the couch like, oh, my God, that's me. And I was like yeah. focused. Yeah, I was like focused on like everything he said after that. I'm like, holy crap. I'm like totally reinventing myself. And then this kind of like leads into the second part of what you're talking about being a green beast. I was like, I'm going to shoot a monster. Like I've been doing good. You know, I was in a, a, a Wired to Hunt article, Average Joe's killing that kill big bucks with uh, Ridge Runner 7, Andy May. I had that. And then I had an article posted as a guest writer. And I was like, feeling pretty good about myself, you know? So now I got these secret tactics. This is, I got this on lock, man. Like where's the booners at? Right. And, uh, I ate my tag that first year was the first as a beast was the first year that I ever didn't shoot a deer in my life since I was 12 years old. Humbling. I was like, okay, then I have some learning to do. Yeah, that like lit the fire under my rear end like nothing. And I, I had the time back then. I had a job where we were slow in the spring. So I had a ton. I had the one year I had 27 kill trees and crown blinds prepped like perfect. And like all this ground scouted. And so that was what laid the foundation down um, for for like my tactics and my skill set now. It's like I got a ton of scouting in early and it takes a ton of boot work. Don't think like any of you out there listening to this, if you think, oh, I, I walked 20 miles this year. Uh, okay, that's 20 miles. It's really not that much. If you ask me, it takes a ton of scouting, 50 miles, 100 miles. I think the most I got the one year was like 80. And then uh, I think the other two were more right around 50. But uh, and that's like GPS through the swamps, hard walking. I, I don't have as much experience in Montana yet, so I, I don't know if this ratio holds, but in Michigan, I would tell people five to one, I would I would walk five miles for every kill tree that I set up. And I think that's probably similar in your area, wouldn't you say? Yeah, pretty close. Something like that. I think so. And I mean, I got, I'm around here, a, a huge parcel is a thousand acres. That's like monstrous. So... I mean, there's a lot of couple hundred acre pieces. So I bounced in and out of a lot of stuff. Don't, don't settle for, don't settle for the mediocre stuff. Keep walking. Like I say, until you find stuff that it's like, oh, this is the goods. And if you're not sure what it is, put the time in, learn it, figure it out and go from there. It's like a, there's been a lot of talk and you'll probably agree with this, but it's like a three to five year uh, kind of learning curve. It, it depends on your situation, how much time you put into it. But if you apply yourself uh, after like three to five years, you'll start to really get a, get a good grasp on it. And I think that's pretty fitting. 
I don't care what techniques you use. Deer hunting, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And the guys that are getting it done, those those top tier consistent killer guys, you talked about putting in the miles. I think I don't know a single really successful deer hunter that doesn't have hours and hours and miles and miles in the woods. Not one. There's there's no shortcut to that kind of success. I mean, you might get lucky and shoot a good one every five or 10 years without that kind of work. But if, if you're after good deer every year, there's just, there's no way around it. It's like, you have to be a student of the woods. And one thing this is slightly off topic from what we were talking about, but you have to be in season is crucial. You have to, the, the problem with spring scouting. Oh, look at this bedding area. It's full of rubs. Okay. When, when were they made? September, November, when you don't know. So, when you go by and um, say you're hunting elsewhere and then in the fall you get by it and it's early November and there's a bunch of rubs in there. Okay. Were they made last week? Were they made in September? You still don't know. You really, on your, on your best spots, you really got to keep tabs on it. Check for tracks, check the fringes of it. You know, you don't want to go tromping bedding and blowing them out of there and stuff, but it uh, once in a while you can, if you feel like you're going to learn, I know I've been, one thing that I've done in the past is uh, if it's an iffy spot that I'm not sure about, I'll throw a sit at it, and I've actually went into bedding areas uh, early season with a flashlight before to see what's in there for rubs and beds. What do you mean with the flashlight? Like, are you going in prior to the hunt, after the hunt? After the hunt. So it's an evening hunt. I, I sit there. Like the one time, I didn't see nothing. Sat there, no deer. It's like, uh, I, I lost confidence in this. I don't think I'm going to hunt this again this year. So I went straight in there, got my phone out, went back to the buck beds, nothing there. I think there was one, one tree that was like barely marked up. Beds didn't look very good. I'm like, okay. But in that same spot, that spring, I went in there on a really windy day and three bucks ran out of there. But from what I saw, <clears throat> so that made me feel like it was a late season spot where, uh, you know, cause, cause that was in like March, right? There's, I remember there was a little bit of snow, but, uh, yeah. you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's where they go. Pressure's almost non-existent. Okay. It's a little lackadaisical now. There's food nearby. We'll lay right in there. It's a classic terrain feature. But there was nothing there when I was there. But that doesn't mean there'll be nothing in there next year. That's all part of the game. You gotta stay on top of it. Keep reading sign and figure it out. You gotta let the deer. You gotta let the deer tell you what to do. Because if you try, that was what that was. Okay, going back to your question of like when I was green, I tried to plan everything out okay, I'm going to hit this spot early season and I'm going to, this spot should be good during pre-rut. And this is going to be like the peak rut, rut funnel. No, you're, do you show up on a lake and try and predict where the fish are? No, you use your locator and you go find the dang fish. And then you fish. <laughs> I mean, I followed Dan for years before that really hit home. I'm laughing, but I, I went through the exact same process where the first year or two, I, I think in my mind, I decided, oh, this is when they're going to be there instead of letting the sign, you know, whether it's observations, tracks, you know, rut sign, whatever it was, let me know that now's the time to hunt it. And that's a really important lesson, I think, when you're when you're bed hunting. A good example was, I think it was the first year uh, me and Tyler went, went back into this bedding area, really remote. It's actually the same property I shot my buck at last year probably a half a mile from where I shot my buck deeper in there. And, uh, 
we're like, oh, this peninsula, like when you, I don't care if you're a super green beast, you see this peninsula and island and you're like, that is money. I can't wait to go look at that, you know, and they're, oh, there's bucks on it, blah, blah, blah. So like it's opening weekend and we're like, we're going in there and we got back there and there was hardly even deer trails. We saw one fawn and I was like, well, what the heck? This was supposed to be like Booner Town, you know, this was, you know. It's all I. And now this past season, I shot that buck literally a half a mile closer to food. He was bedded 250 yards from my truck. I looped around and made my move for the past. And I know that there was deer in there because there was rubs there and poop. And the sign looked basically the same the past couple springs when I scouted it and just assessed it wrong. And uh, so I think for the past how many years I've been heading back into that cover. Bucks are right by my truck. Yeah, walking right by them. Dude, they're, no, like, I would head straight ahead. Like, if I park and walk 250 yards in a straight line, they're right there on the right side. But I would take a hard left and go east rather than south. And then I would walk close to a half a mile to this sign and then just get strung along by a few does and little bucks and wonder where the big ones are at. Wherever the people aren't, period. Dan says it a million times. Wherever the people aren't, I don't care if you think it's stupid. If you don't ever go there, chances are, you know, I mean, you get people that do all kinds of things, but just don't ever think anything is too stupid to hunt. If you think something's stupid, go bust it out. I do that a lot. I, I got a bedding area. I don't really know what to think of it. I'll cyber scout it or uh, spring scout it and be, ah, I'm really in between it. I'll walk through it in the middle of the season, see what runs out. Man, that's that's a great point, and that's something that I've done more and more. Like the more I've got in the beast, because if you're if you're a hardcore deer hunter or even a semi-series deer hunter, I mean, you got to be thinking long term, right? So if I bust these deer out, maybe I blew them up for this week or this month or whatever. But if you get that intel, there's a good chance with you know out major changes like logging or total losses of food source that that intel is going to be good for the next 5, 10, 20 years. And that's, uh, I think, a super critical point. Get that intel. I think a lot of people are scared to get in there in season and blow it up. People are extremely scared to bust deer or get busted. Get over it. Go go kick up some deer until you don't even care that you're kicking up deer anymore. Get over it and go, you know – if you get busted, you're trying out a ground hunt and you get busted, just laugh about it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. That's how you learn. You got to get out of your comfort zone and grow. Going back to busting stuff out in season, I don't think I have ever, not even once, came to the conclusion that it was a good spot and worthy of my time. I'm not saying that there's not huntable deer in there at some point, right? but I never was like, oh, I kicked a nice buck out of there. Oh, look at all this buck sign. There was bucks in here already. Not once. So it's like, that's how you learn. You got to answer the questions in your mind. doesn't matter what the question is. Find a way to answer it. Whether it's going against what Dan teaches or whatever. I mean, there's a few things that, that Dan teaches that I don't necessarily agree with. There's also things that he said in the beginning that I didn't agree with that now I do. So you, you got to make your own recipe for success. Figure, don't let you can't read your way to success and you can't go on the beast and start threads and then get all the answers. It's all about what your situation is and how you interpret sign and what your strengths strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah, I don't know what podcast it was, but it was a, a fairly recent podcast with uh Joe Predator TC. His last name's Rentmeester. 
that's escaping me for a minute there. But he pretty much talked about the same thing about like, you know, early on in the beast, you read stuff and that's the rule book, right? And you don't deviate from the rule book, but that's not the case. Every situation is different. And I, I like to say there's no always and never in deer hunting. There's there's definitely tendencies and things that, that are consistent, but there's no always and there's no never. You got to make it work for whatever whatever situation you're in. Well, and just look at look at the different opinions. Look at all the when we were doing those Q and A's and stuff. Uh, like no no two people were the same. You got guys that say I live and die by my cameras. You know they're a huge part of what I do. And the next guy's like, oh, I have some cameras, but I haven't put them out in a few years. Right. You know, it's like so okay. That doesn't mean one guy's right and one's wrong. You got one guy. You know, Dave T down south. He loves mornings. Other guys, oh, they're they're horrible. I always get busted, or they're always there before me. Well, can you can you kill one in the morning? Go figure it out. If you try it for a few years and it doesn't work, well then okay, now you know. Just don't sit there and wonder about it forever. It's not going to get you anywhere if you don't answer your questions. Yeah, and you said that that doesn't mean one guy's right and one guy's wrong. There's a good chance both guys are right, and there's something to learn from each one of them. And you know, take a take the pieces that work in your area and, and integrate them and. And the things that don't, you get rid of them. So want to want to move on here. Two more questions. We're going to wrap it up. So the second to last question I have is, do you set goals for yourself, like coming into a hunting season? And if so, well, uh, what kind of criteria are you considering when you're setting your goals? Um, I mean, I do. My goal, my goal every year, or the past few anyways, past four years or so, is a three-and-a-half-year-old or better on public, which... I mean, in my opinion, if you get a two and a half year old on public around here, you're doing just fine with your bow. Um, I mean, they're around, but like I say, I fight that low pressure and I fight the uh, the pattern ability of these deer because they, they really seem to be mostly here today, gone tomorrow, but that's not always the case. You know, I found that last year. Yeah, I try not to get too caught up with goals. It's just, I want to shoot a nice, respectable buck and and have fun doing it. And I mean, I'm getting to the point now where it's like I've killed quite a few deer and it's becoming like the need to kill is becoming less and less every year. So I enjoy my time out there more because of that. Because like I say, I used to I like I had to kill my deer. I remember the first time that I didn't. It was December 31st. I like froze my butt off. I'm like, this is a bunch of BS. I had to eat my tag. Now, what am I going to eat in my fish house? I don't have any venison. This is a bunch of crap. You know, and it's like uh it doesn't really matter it's it's all in your head if you let it get to you then you know maybe that's something you should work on but it's just a deer you know and i had people tell me that years ago it's just a deer man don't, like, don't get so worked up about it but and, and like i say it's easy for somebody who's shot quite a few deer to tell that to somebody who's only got a few and is still really hungry but uh put forth the effort your time will come you'll get there stay on the beast and uh keep reading yeah goals are good to have though I think it helps a person grow. Yeah, that's that's going to lead into my next question. So I talked to you the other day and found out you uh, got a, a golden ticket you'd been waiting on. So talk to me about your plans for 2020. I mean, you kind of discussed what you're after in, in Minnesota, three-and-a-half-year-old with a bow. But tell everybody uh, where you're heading this fall and what, what your plans and your goals are for out there. Uh, I'll be heading to Western South Dakota. I haven't had a rifle tag for out there since 2012. And uh, I was applying for a really, really tough draw. Um, a few years I just bow hunted and got points, but um, I had six points and I finally decided to 
get out of that tough draw and go somewhere a little little more within reach, I guess, as far as the application process goes. So I drew I drew my tag, but it's gonna be a little bit interesting. I'm gonna depending on the weather, I might even be camping out by myself, getting one of those uh, I forget what they call them, one of them one man sleeping bags that everybody packs in. They're not the great big ones that I mom Oh yeah, like a bivy, bivy sack. Yeah. So I might be doing that because where I need to go and where I need to be from what we've seen bow hunting is like, it's 2.9 miles to my lookout. And then it's another, at least a mile through the nasty, nasty stuff. And I really don't want to leave my truck at two in the morning to beat everybody out there. So I might just sleep and see how it goes. But we've seen some monster muleys out there. So that's what I have an any deer tag. And, uh, yeah, the rest of my normal crew, I haven't hunted with them for a long time because I've been bow hunting, but uh, they've all got whitetail tags for the same zone. But um, my, you, you kind of find uh, anybody that hunts South Dakota, the river bottom type stuff kind of hold more whitetails, watery, marshy type stuff. And then the, the rougher, rockier stuff is where you'll find the mule deers, and that's kind of where I'll be. So I might be going after a muley then, huh? I'm going after a big one, and if I'm going to be four or five miles in there, it ain't going to be small if I'm bringing it out. I'm faced with that battle of this is a tag that I might not ever have again, so I don't know if it would take me. I don't know. If I want to keep going with my group, they like to draw and go a lot, so I don't know if I'll ever get enough points to draw an any deer tag again, so I might not have it again. So, okay, do I really want to eat this tag? You know, I'm going to go out there and enjoy myself for sure, but it's like, I'm looking for like a a big one, like a 170-ish is my goal. They're there. <laughs> or if it's an old warrior, we've seen a couple that were just, the one had to have been upper 20s wide and his tines were only like 12 inches or something, but he was just incredible, like Cabela's mass, just a beast. Dude, and he Horse had, body. Dude, I was, we were actually tracking a buck. I've told you the story about that buck that I hit in the shoulder blade after the best stock that I will ever pull off. So we were tracking that deer, and while we were watching him down below, we looked over, and Tyler's like, dude, right there. I'm like, holy crap. And I'm looking at the bottom, and I'm looking at the top, not realizing a buck could be laying on that. It was seriously close to vertical, and he was laying right in the center. And it's like, I'm talking 40 <laughs> feet up and down. And that thing, yeah. he's, seen, he's seen us. If I would have had a rifle, I could have shot him easy. He was like 75, 80 yards or something. And he took off and he went straight up it. Yeah, it's crazy where you find the muleys sometimes. They get in some pretty rugged country. It was insane. It was insane. But that thing was just a beast. So I, I don't know. I just want a nice mature buck. And like I say, I ain't shooting no two-year-old pack them out four and a half miles. I'm going to be half dead. I'm not in good mountain shape like you and Tim. Oh, that's Tim. I'm I'm in terrible mountain shape. I just try to hang and not die. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But uh, yeah, I got some work to do. I gotta. I haven't shot my rifle in a while. Gotta see if all my see how many even hand loads I've got. But I shoot a twenty-five odd six, then reload bullets. But it's been a long time since I reloaded any. Hey, it'll be it'll be here before you know it. You better get on top of that stuff. Dude, I know it. I know I got to apply for my Montana point too. Tim's going to text me every day, he said, until I do. Get them while they're hot. I'm slow on the trigger for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I can understand why. There's there's no good hunting out here anyway, so you probably shouldn't even buy one. 
Well, you said it's really crowded too, so. Yeah, people everywhere now, dear. I know. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Well, hey, I wish you the best of luck in uh, South Dakota. I'm sure we'll be keeping up during the season. want to thank you for your time coming on here, being the, the first guest. Oh, man, it was a lot of fun. It was an honor, man. Uh, I appreciate you having me on here. And hopefully I didn't ramble too much. And hopefully your listeners uh, learned a thing or two about topics we talked about, I guess. A lot of good insights. And I think it'll be valuable information for people that are like us, uh, like how we were a few years ago, you know, three, four years ago, getting into the beast tactics and trying to try, trying to bridge that gap from totally new guy to Dan, you know, I think we're somewhere in the middle right now and it's uh, easier to take the first step than one giant step. So hopefully there'll be some good information for people looking to do some of their first out of the state hunts or, or refine their, their early life beast tactics. Another thing I'll add about the new guys following the beast. There's a couple guys on there that make it look incredibly easy. Just, Tell them congratulations and don't feel like crap about yourself because we've been drooling over their bucks for years and they're just really, really good at what they do. Bull Hunter for Life, Ridge Runner 7. Those two guys really stand out to me. Joe Alsinger, bunch of killers. So, hey, man, thanks again. And we're going to wrap it up there. And if you got any last words, say them now. I think we're good. All right. Hey, thanks again, Ryan. We'll catch you later. All right, later.